Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Kath. Tobes. It is time to shake shit up and try something new. Maybe try several new things? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? Absolutely. It is the, the Nancy, Nancy Variety Show. Show. Oh, also, I'm going to play all the music myself. Here we go. From WNYC Studios, this is Nancy. With your hosts, Tobin Lowe and Kathy Too. I just want to remind you that I played the drums, so you could have just asked for help. It's okay. I got it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so up first, it's a game I'm very excited about. Yes, yes. It is a game we are calling... What are the straights up to? What are the straights up to? (laughs) It's a jingle. That's the theme song. So, in this game, we're going to dig into the nonsense that straight culture seems to love. All right, Tobin, what ridiculousness are we talking about today? Today, Kathy, we are talking about gender reveal parties. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Duh. If you're unfamiliar, gender reveal parties are where parents-to-be gather their friends and family to reveal the quote-unquote gender of their baby. Right. So the example I always think of is like there's a cake Mm -hmm. and it's the inside is like either pink or blue, but the outside you can't tell. Right. And then they cut into it to reveal the color. Right. Blue means boy. Pink means girl. Mm -hmm. And um, it's so problematic. I hate it. It reinforces (laughs) the idea of the gender binary. Totally. You know, it's like you're either a boy or a girl, and whatever you're assigned at birth is just it. And over time, how couples do these gender reveals has gotten wild. So, Kathy, here's the game for today. I'm going to tell you about different ways that couples have revealed the gender of their baby, and you have to guess whether it's a real thing that a real couple has done or something I totally (laughs) made up. So, Kathy, if you get the question correct, you will hear this noise. And if you get it wrong, you will hear couple number one. This couple has made a giant pinata in the likeness of the mother-to-be. Inside that pinata is the father-to-be dressed as a giant baby. He then bursts out of the pinata, spraying pink silly string and also terrifying the children at this party. (laughs) Is this a real gender reveal party or not? This did not go the way I thought it was going to go. I thought that it was going to be a piñata in which you had to hit the mother's belly with stick. No. With sticks, and then the candy would be one color or the other. Right. In this case, no, it's much worse than what you thought. It's much worse. So, I'm going to say not true. It is a real gender reveal party. How big was the piñata? It was a giant pinata. Oh, my. God. Was there any candy in there? No, just a father. Okay. Not only did they violate that rule, they also made a giant pinata for no good reason. Anyway, yeah. sorry. Kath, sorry. You're losing. Uh, first one wrong. God damn it. Next couple. Are you ready? Yes. This couple happens to be the owners of four beautiful golden retrievers. The father-to-be also happens to be a scientist who has mixed together a clear gel-like substance that turns a predetermined color when wet. The couple covers their dogs in this substance and in front of friends and family hose down the dogs, turning them a bright blue. 
The couple later said they regretted this decision as it took about four months to get the blue out of their dog's hair. (laughs) Is this a real gender reveal party or not? I don't know. This is like animal abuse, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Was the were the dogs covered completely? Head to toe. Uh, not true. You are correct. It is not true. It did not happen. I made that up. What sick mind? I knew it would cloy your heartstrings because you now have a dog. <laughs> <laughs> Evil. All right. Very good, Kathy. You got one right. Okay. Is All there right. another one? Yes. Okay. Here we go. Next couple. Okay. I want you to close your eyes for this one. All right. Here we go. Picture it. A group of people are standing in a circle, Mm -hmm. and in the middle of the circle is a full-grown alligator. (laughs) The father-to-be steps into the circle, opens the mouth of the alligator, and puts in what appears to be a hollowed-out coconut. The alligator chomps down to reveal a blue jello-like substance. (laughs) Is this... A real gender reveal party. What? How are they okay standing around an alligator? Listen, you are asking the wrong person. I would be a hundred miles away from this party. Oh my God. I want it to not be true, but it sounds like something someone would do. Final answer? Yeah. This really happened, people. Oh my God. This really happened. Oh, okay. Sad news for life, but good news for you. You finished strong with two correct answers, so I'm going to say you won. I am proud of myself, almost. (laughs) But really, who won? (laughs) Well, that brings me to my question. What did we learn today? That gender reveal parties are dumb and the binary is nonsense. Thank you. Agreed. Agreed. But you did super well. I'm impressed. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) All right. Next segment time. Are you ready, Kath? Yes. This segment is called... Ask a queer professional. Ask a queer. Ask a queer professional. That's the theme song for that one. So it turns out queer people are everywhere. I know. (laughs) For pretty much every job you can imagine, you can find a queer person rocking it. So we thought, why not ask some of them for some advice? Yes. We're going to be talking to rad queer professionals about the jobs that they do And they're going to answer your listener-submitted questions with all of their knowledge. And today, we are talking cars. Cars, 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 cars. That was pretty good, right? (laughs) (laughs) On the phone with us is Kaya Milstein. She runs the website Mechanic Shop Femme, where she offers advice to women and queer folks on everything from maintaining your car to being smart about buying a new ride. So let us welcome to the show, Kaya. Hi, Kaya. Hi, Kathy and Tobin. So excited to be here today. (laughs) (laughs) We're excited to have you. Uh, I'm going to start by asking, where are you right now? Where are we talking to you from? Right now, I'm in Brookfield, Wisconsin. I'm parked a couple blocks away from the collision shop that I work at. Fun fact, my dad owns an auto body shop in Los Angeles. Awesome. I mean, I couldn't tell you any more than that about cars. so. (laughs) (laughs) So you've built this career around all things fixing cars. What's your favorite kind of car problem to fix? I always find it interesting when people come in and they have like noises in their vehicle that they're like, I've had this going on for a year. (laughs) (laughs) I've had this going on for a year and nobody can figure it out. Well, we actually asked people in our Friends of Nancy Facebook group 
to submit their car questions, and we would love to run some by you and get your advice. Hi, Nancy. My name is Zohar. We recently got a new car, and I'm wondering, what sort of gas should we use on it? The manual says 87, but is it better to use a more premium gas? Thanks. So AAA actually did like a survey or a study on folks using different types of fuel in their vehicle than what's recommended. Mm -hmm. And they say that 16.5 million drivers use premium fuel despite their vehicle manufacturer's recommendation. (laughs) (laughs) They have run tests on it. Um, There's a huge gap in price and there's absolutely no reason to use premium fuel or anything besides 87 Mm -hmm. in your vehicle unless you have a vehicle that requires it. If you have a vehicle that requires it, that's a different story though. You should definitely use the correct fuel. Wow. So I'm going to put my dad on blast for a second here (laughs) because he owns an auto body shop and he does great work. But this is the one thing I yell at him about all the time. I drive a Toyota Prius, and when Mm -hmm. he first got his hands on it, he immediately put premium gas in there. I was like, Dad, (laughs) this is unnecessary. Anyways, okay. You've just been vindicated. Well, you know, 16.5 million people in 2010 made the same mistake. (laughs) According to AAA, it cost them $2.1 billion. Oh, Oh my God. Okay. All right. Um, Okay. Next up is Sarah. My ABS light has been on all through the bitter Chicago winter, and I'd gotten some work done um, replacing the brakes and um, some stuff on the suspension in January, so I mentioned it, and I was told that it was very likely just the cold and it would probably go away in the spring. So it's spring now, no longer cold, and it hasn't gone away, and I have no concept of what this means or how concerned I should be about it. So the ABS system is the anti-brake locking system. Basically, it's there to better brake for you in a situation where you are short-stopping or when you're hydroplaning. Hmm. So it's definitely an important safety feature in your vehicle. If your ABS light is on, it could mean several different things. It can mean the ABS is not working. It could mean the computer is not communicating to the ABS sensors, which are in the wheels. I would definitely get the ABS light diagnosed probably by somebody that did not do your brakes and suspension because it doesn't take a whole lot of work in order to diagnose that. Mm. And then you can make an educated decision about what you want to do with the ABS. Well, I feel like I've been in many, many cars of friends with a light on, like a warning light in their car on, and everybody says it's always fine. Is it always fine, Kaya? (laughs) Not always. (laughs) If you have a check engine light, it could come on for over 600 different reasons. What? It's connected to eight self-diagnostic computers, minimum eight self-diagnostic computers in the vehicle. And each of those computers testing many, many different components. And if any of those components are bad over two trip cycles, it will throw a diagnostic code to check engine light. So not always is there an actual problem that is you know drastically immediately has to be taken care of but often the problems you know get exacerbated the longer you wait gotcha so we're gonna move on to our next question um you mentioned before that you like car noise problems so i think this one will be right up your alley um this one's from sherry she says so i drive a 97 pontiac grand dam and it makes this random clicking noise 
I'll be driving or sitting at a stoplight or whatever, and from somewhere within the dash, maybe towards the passenger side-ish, there'll be a rapid series of like three to five, maybe seven clicks. It's never like continuous, but it just goes, and then it just stops. The clicks alternate in tone, high, low, high. Um, This has been happening for years. A friend of a friend said their car did the clicking noise too, but they also didn't know what it was. So why is my car clicking? Kaya, what is the clicking noise? (laughs) (laughs) So obviously I can't diagnose the car over a podcast, but I can tell you that that clicking, especially from the passenger side, often happens from the blend door actuator, which is part of the blowing system. So like your fan and your AC sticking. So it's supposed to open and close fluidly. And if it's sticking, it will cause that clicking sound, especially when the AC or fan are working or when you just turned it off. So it's not necessarily have to get fixed right Mm -hmm. away, um, but that's probably what it is coming from. Well, I mean, especially since it's been happening for years and she seems to be fine. (laughs) (laughs) It's really annoying, though. Oh, okay. So sometimes people fix things because they're annoying. I'm one of those people. I would have taken this (laughs) in and been like, I am going to die unless this is fixed. (laughs) Okay, wait, before we let you go, I want to ask a question. Mm -hmm. I drive a Toyota Prius and I grew up in L.A. and I'm thinking of bringing my car over to New York. Is it going to be okay? <laughs> it will be okay. Um, but after the first winter, you may notice that there are, so there's a lot of rubber components in your vehicle, gaskets and things of that nature. Uh-huh. Sometimes you do find that the vehicle will develop fluid leaks um, or things of that nature uh-huh. after like the first winter in a cold climate. So I would definitely keep the vehicle maintained and check it out during the process, but the car is going to be fine. It'll probably do better than it would have done if you would have bought it and used it in New York the whole time because it's not going to develop the rust just as fast. Mm. And it was probably driven in roads that don't have as many potholes. And It's true. It's true. (laughs) Um, And also my dad's favorite thing to do in the world is not talk to his children, but to maintain his cars, including mine. It's beautifully maintained. It's beautifully maintained. (laughs) (laughs) Then it will probably treat you very well. Okay, perfect. Perfect. Kaya, thank you so much for talking with us. This was so much fun. This was awesome. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Kaya, I'm going to play you out with some music. Bye. All right, while Tobin continues to kazoo music, I'm going to say that we'll be right back after the break with an update on queer rights. And we make a very important decision for the future of queer people everywhere. Tobin, is that Camp Town Races? I depict something with no copyright. Uh, you're listening to Nancy. The archives at Carnegie Hall hold treasures from our cultural history. In the new podcast, If This Hall Could Talk, we use these items as touchstones to explore how the past shaped the world we live in today. I'm your host, Jessica Vosk, and I'll be joined by historians, performers, cultural critics, and others to look back at the iconic venue's legendary and sometimes quirky history. If This Hall Could Talk, from Carnegie Hall and distributed by WQXR. Listen wherever you get podcasts. That's my miserable whistle to say that we're back. (laughs) With the Nancy Variety Show. Yes. Okay, let's move on to the next segment. Okay, so here on Nancy, we've done a lot of reporting on queer rights here in the U.S., 
And lately, there's been so much happening that could really change what protections queer people have in this country. Which is why we're calling this segment, Hey, What's Up With My Rights? You did that really well. Thank you. Today, we're talking about protections at work. You might remember from our At I Work series that back in 1964, Congress passed the Civil Rights Act. And part of that law, called Title VII, says you can't discriminate against someone on the basis of race, color, religion, national origin, or sex. And the way the courts have interpreted it has evolved over time. It's been used to protect women from discrimination. It's been used to say that sexual harassment is illegal. And in some cases, it's also been used to say that you can't discriminate against LGBTQ folks in the workplace. Right. So an example of that is the case of Donald Zarda. He was a skydiving instructor in Long Island who alleged that he was fired after he told a client he was gay. Donald sued, and his case has been working its way through the court for years. He actually died tragically in 2014, but his estate is continuing to pursue the case. And now the Supreme Court is going to hear it, along with two others involving LGBTQ workers. Which means they could decide once and for all if Title VII does or doesn't protect queer people in the workplace. So I decided to call up a friend of the show, Mark Joseph Stern. He covers the Supreme Court as well as LGBTQ issues for Slate. I wanted to ask about what to look for as the Supreme Court agrees to hear these cases. Hello. Hi, Mark. Hi. So glad to be making my return. (laughs) So, Mark, what is the current state of protections for LGBTQ workers on the federal level? So it's basically a hot mess. Right. The TLDR is like, it's all over the place depending on where you live. Exactly right. Uh, truly, and this is not how federal law is supposed to work, um, but whether or not you are protected against anti-gay, anti-trans workplace discrimination uh, under federal law depends on which state you live in. Um, the last time we talked, uh, we were talking about this case of Donald Zarda, who was a skydiving instructor um, who said he was fired because he was gay. What are sort of the circumstances of the other two cases? They are very interesting and in some ways kind of heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. Um, So the other sexual orientation case is Bostock versus Clayton County, Georgia, uh, which involved uh, an employee uh, of the county uh, who joined a gay softball league called Hotlanta. And essentially, because he joined this gay softball league, he was terminated. And uh, he then sued and said, look, you only fired me because I'm gay. And the county turned around and said, well, that doesn't matter because you aren't protected. Um, And the case went up to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals and the 11th Circuit sided with the county and said, you know what? Congress did not intend to outlaw anti-gay discrimination in 1964. Uh, You are not protected under this law and throughout his case. The third case, which is also very interesting, is called R.G. and G.R. Harris Funeral Homes. So it involves a, a trans employee of this funeral home in Michigan who, when she started working, presented as a male, which was her sex assigned at birth. Um, she worked there for a number of years, presented as a male, but eventually told her boss, hey, listen, for much of my life, I've been struggling with gender identity, uh, and I, I now recognize that I am a woman, and I'm going to begin the process of transitioning. 
which will mean, among other things, presenting as a woman at work. And her boss, who was very, very religious and very anti-LGBTQ, said, well, that's too bad for you. I'm going to have to let you go. And so the employer very, very clearly fired her on the basis of her transgender status. Uh, She wound up winning a unanimous victory in the sixth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, which uh, disagreed with some other conservative courts uh, and said, yes, of course, discrimination on the basis of sex encompasses anti-transgender discrimination. And so we're going to rule in her favor. And that case was appealed and the court took all three. So we're going to have a big old blockbuster term next year uh, when the court's going to decide all of these cases at once. So for for those arguing that uh, Title VII doesn't cover LGBTQ workers, um, how does that argument play out? So what they say basically is that no one who voted for Title VII of the Civil Rights Act in 1964 thought that the law that they were passing uh, protected gay, bisexual, or transgender people. Uh, And I think that that is probably true. But the the problem with that argument is that no one who voted for that bill, or at least few people who voted for that bill, had a very clear idea of what sex discrimination meant. Uh, This provision, banning discrimination because of sex, was added uh, kind of at the last minute by a very racist congressman who did not want black women to have more protection in the workplace than white women. So he said, well, if we're going to ban race discrimination at work. We also need to ban sex discrimination at work. Mm. Uh, And and so there wasn't really much floor debate at all about what this meant. Uh, And and so it's easy to say, sure, of course, no one in 1964 thought that that the sex discrimination encompassed anti-gay discrimination or anti-trans discrimination, but it's much harder to say what they actually thought the bill did. Uh, And so we have to focus instead on text and precedent. We can't really get anywhere useful if all we do is try to take a time machine back to 1964 and figure out what the congressman meant. So is it just LGBTQ workers who would be affected if the court rules that Title VII doesn't cover sexual orientation and gender identity? Not at all, Hmm. although it does depend on how they rule. Um, But another factor here is the doctrine of so-called sex stereotyping. Hmm. Um, So the court ruled long ago that a form of sex discrimination is sex stereotyping, wherein an employer says, I don't like this female worker because she's too masculine. She's too butch. You know, she doesn't present herself as sufficiently feminine. That is sex discrimination, and it is illegal under Title VII. Uh, If the court rejects those theories, if the court cuts back on sex stereotyping doctrine or overrules it altogether, then it is not just LGBTQ people who are in serious legal trouble because the sex stereotyping principle protects us all. It's not just gay people and trans people. It's also a woman who doesn't want to present as super feminine in the workplace. It's a straight man who might be a little effeminate, to use a stereotypical term, who might present in a way that's not traditionally masculine. Uh, It's any kind of individual who doesn't perform gender the way that his or her employer wants them to perform gender. Uh, If the sex stereotyping doctrine is all overruled, if the Roberts court just throws it out the window, 
um, then a whole bunch of people are going to be in legal jeopardy because they're no longer going to have the right to express their gender however they want at work. And their bosses are going to be able to police their genders, police their gender expression, and get away with it in court. Right, right. Mark, thank you so much for making time to talk to me. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me back on. Okay, Kathy, we are at the last act of our show. I want us to shake out our shoulders a little bit. Okay. Deep breath in, deep breath out. This is a silly one. Okay, great. Here we go. So as we all know, queer history is full of rich, iconic moments, people, treasured objects. It all adds up to this amazing collection of what some might call the queer canon. Right. Shows like The L Word, mm-hmm. Noah's Ark, mm-hmm. books like Stone Butch Blues, mm-hmm. all in the queer canon. But Kathy, how does one decide what makes it into the canon? What hurdles does something need to clear to be enshrined forever? And is there room in the canon for silly things? Great question, Tobin. I think we found the answer in a segment that we are calling, Is It Canon? Is it canon? We're going to debate if something should or should not be considered part of the queer world forevermore. This time around, the object of for debate is... Succulents. <laughs> oh, God. They are the super on-trend plants you see on desks and Instagram feeds everywhere. So, Tobin, you're arguing for, I'm arguing against, and then we're also going to hear from you, dear listeners, about what you think. Okay, Tobin, make your case. Okay, I have a very simple three-point presentation. Okay. There's no presentation. First of all, succulents. They are made to last in dry-ass temperatures with limited resources. (laughs) Tell me something that is more queer than being able to survive harsh climates and atmospheres that are not built for you. Okay. To me, that is very queer. Great. Okay, also... A lot of succulents are, like, hard and spiky on the outside, but soft and squishy on the inside. So many queer people I know are like this. Wow, name four. Uh, myself, you, Temi, who's sitting in the booth, Zaki, our <laughs> producer, Jeremy. Literally all of us are like this. <laughs> okay. Okay, and also, I didn't want to bring this up, but instagays fucking love succulents. <laughs> Like, when I imagine an instigay, I imagined a torso surrounded by succulents. Just like plants, 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 nipples, plants, nipples. (laughs) So this is my argument for why succulents should be added to the queer canon. Okay. Some decent points. Mm -hmm. Kathy, you are not for succulents making it into the queer canon. Can you tell me why? Point number one. Okay. Plants die. Succulents also die. Like, I know that succulents are supposed to be able to survive harsh things, Uh but I know more than a couple people, at least a handful of people that claim to be succulent killers. Are you talking about yourself? I am one of those people. (laughs) It's true. Okay. I'm not 100% sure what a succulent is. I'm not either. Right? How can it be in the canon if nobody knows what it is? I just imagine if it's in a beautiful little pot, that's a succulent. Okay, clearly we have no idea what we're talking about. Yeah. Let's hear from our listeners. Do you think succulents should be added to the queer canon? 
plants are queer. Caring about nature is queer. Gardening is queer. And therefore, succulents are hella queer. They're resistant, but they need gentle care. They're beautiful. And nature and plants have been used as symbols of queerness forever. All I can think of when I think of succulents is a Kimberly marrying a Bradley. With the succulent aesthetic, they swipe from Pinterest boards by Mormon moms. Don't get me wrong. I love succulents. I'm an Arizona bitch, but like the straights have tainted this one, folks. We need more asexual representation in our cultural lexicon. And what non-human screams asexual more than the low-key ace succulent? Succulents are definitely a hipster thing, not a queer thing explicitly. We're more than a West Elm catalog. However, many in our community have small living spaces because most of us may not be homeowners. So a lot of us bring smaller plants inside of our living space, and succulents definitely fit that bill. All right, the listeners are divided, Kathy. Mm -hmm. This is up to us. What do we think? I don't know. I still don't think so. Mm -hmm. What do you think? I'm going to say that I'm going to declare a winner and say that succulents should make it into the queer canon. And with that, Kathy, we did it. We made it to the end of the Nancy Variety Show. Okay, personally, I loved it so much. We laughed, we learned, we loved. Did we love? We did love. We absolutely loved. It was so good. Mm-hmm. Tobin, why don't you play us out so we can do credits? Our staff includes Zakia Gibbons, Stephanie Joyce, Temi Thugbenle, Jeremy Bloom, and Paula Schumann. I'm Kathy Too. I'm Tobin Lowe. And Nancy is a production of WNYC Studios. Julie are trained, motherfuckers.